Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank you that you are here with us in the midst of us by your Spirit, that through your Son you have united us to one another and have united us to your Son. Fill us all with your Spirit that we might be guided more deeply into your Word, that we might receive from you more fully your goodness, that we might receive from you more fully your kindness, that we might receive more fully from you the fullness of your steadfast love for us, that we might evermore live in your gracious presence and come to know the resurrection that is ours in Christ our Lord. All of this we ask through that very same Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, taste and see how gracious the Lord is. Blessed is the one who trusts in Him. That was Psalm 34.8 that we just read just a few minutes ago. And that just struck me right then as we were hearing it. Oh, taste and see how gracious the Lord is. Because this story that we just heard, this parable of Jesus, ends with a huge banquet. If we know anything about banquets in Scripture, these banquets make our little get-togethers, our little house parties pale. These banquets were banquets that involved the entire village that these people lived with. Everyone would come out to it. All the elders, all the adults would come and break bread and eat together. And it would last for days. It wasn't just like a little evening get-together for a couple hours. It was for a week sometimes when they would celebrate the events that they were celebrating. And the kids would all be outside playing in the street, having a good time, dancing to the music, and enjoying themselves. This ancient culture knew how to celebrate when something grand and glorious occurred. But the thing that they're celebrating is not quite what we think it is. So often when we look at this parable of the prodigal son, we miss out on a huge amount of cultural context. There's so much behind this story that it's shocking. And I have to admit right now up front that most of my sermon is just me riffing on Kenneth Bailey. He was a Middle Eastern scholar, an ancient Near Eastern scholar of the New Testament. He spent most of his life, a good 40 years, I think, living in the Middle East, studying the culture and teaching at a university there. And he wrote numerous books that were about that ancient Near Eastern context, that were about how to look at these parables, to look at these stories of Jesus and understand them through Middle Eastern eyes, to understand them in the midst of that cultural context that Jesus is found in. And I think that some of the things that he brings forth about that culture are extremely enriching, that they bring out a depth to this story that we easily miss in our American context, in our modern American way of reading everything and flattening everything out, and so often making it about us. This parable is not about a prodigal son. This parable is not about the older son. The reality is this parable is about a gracious father who loves his sons. That he loves them so deeply that he is willing to take upon himself their very acts of shame. 
He takes upon himself all of this, the dishonor that they bring upon him in order to restore them to himself, in order to create a way for them to come and remain and become anew, to be part of the family. That is what this story is really about. We get wrapped up in looking at the two sons when we really should be looking at the father. Because that's the context. That's the story that Jesus is wanting to tell. He's explaining who God is to the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the scribes and the prostitutes. He's telling them and teaching them about the very nature of the fatherhood of God. And all of this is in a context here in the chapter 15 of Luke. We didn't read it, but the very first few verses of this chapter say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the situation that Jesus is in in this moment. The scribes and the Pharisees are upset because Jesus is having table fellowship with sinners, with tax collectors, with all kinds of icky, dirty, unclean people who are just trapped in sin. It's not just that Jesus is teaching them. I mean, even the Pharisees would say, well, these people have to be taught right from wrong. If they're to ever repent and turn from their sins, you have to teach them what the law is. But the problem came when Jesus then sat down and ate with them. When he sat down and had real fellowship with them beyond just that barrier of teaching. But when he came and entered into their lives. And so Luke says, so Jesus told this parable. But then Luke goes on to recount three different stories. But I don't think Luke is mistaken that this is all of these stories are really one single long parable looked at from different perspectives. With different characters, different movements of a story bringing together one large great idea of who God the Father is. Explaining why Jesus would rejoice, why he would celebrate, why he would eat with sinners who were coming to him. Jesus is driving home that he must celebrate. The Father must celebrate when sinners repent and turn back to Him. Because the Father has made a way for them to come. He has made a path for them to turn from their sin, for them to turn from themselves. He has made a path for them to come and rejoice. The story is but one part of a larger parable. A parable that begins with a bunch of sheep and one of them getting lost and a shepherd going after him. That also has in it a woman who loses a coin and has to find that coin. We glimpse over these so quickly to get to the prodigal son, to get to this story, this last part of it. But those are important parts of this that lay groundwork for getting and coming forward to what we are getting at here with the Father. In verse 6 of chapter 15, the shepherd comes home with his sheep, with the lost sheep, and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The rejoicing isn't about the sheep being found or the sheep being brought home. The rejoicing is about the shepherd finding his sheep. They're rejoicing because he found this sheep that was lost. Likewise, with the coin. In verse 9, when she finds it, she calls her friends and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found 
Yes, it's important that they found the thing that was lost, but the rejoicing and the celebrating is the fact that they have accomplished this deed. They set out to find something, and they found it. And so they want to have a celebration over the fact that they accomplished the goal that they set forward to do. And I think that is what we are seeing here. That is what we are seeing here right now with Jesus' story of the Father's love. But the first thing that we're going to see here right now is that there is a rejected love. There in verse 11, Jesus just simply starts off. There was a man who had two sons. And immediately everyone in that context is going to jump back to the Old Testament. As soon as they hear about there being two sons, there's, well, there's Cain and Abel. There's Esau and Jacob, Ishmael and Isaac, Joseph and all of his brothers, David and all of his brothers. There's all kinds of stories about brothers having conflict, brothers having problems in the Old Testament. And Jesus is building on that recognition of that history of Israel that there were always situations that involved an older brother and a younger brother and conflict between the two of some sort. Jesus is building on that. But something strange happens. The younger son goes to the father and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This section is all about the rejected love of the father, the rejected love that comes from the father by the younger son. In essence, the son literally says to his father, I want you to die. I want nothing to do with you. I want my share of the property. I get a third of everything that you own because my older brother gets a double portion. Therefore, I get a third and I want it now. He doesn't want to wait until his father literally dies. He just says, give it to me because I wish you were dead. The full weight of that in the Middle Eastern culture is shocking. That's an insult beyond all other insults. It is an insult that is so terrible that in all situations where that happens, it is the right of the father to beat his son to the point of almost dying. It is the right of the father to throw that son out, to disown him, to have nothing else to do with him ever again, to reject the son as the son has rejected him. That is the insult that this younger son just gave to his father by telling him, I wish you were dead. But that's not what the father does. Jesus here creates a new picture of what fatherhood is about in the Middle East, in the Orient there. Instead of the father backhanding the son and beating him and throwing him out, the father simply gives him his part of the property. He divides his property between the two sons. The father acts graciously. The father acts with great compassion and great love in order to be near to the son, in order to let the son do what the son feels he must do. He gives him his property and lets him go. He, offers, he does not reject him, but he fulfills his request. Ken Bailey related a story from one of his students at the university where this actually happened in the Middle East. There's a Middle Eastern student who knew of a family that this situation happened in. The son did go to the father and ask for his inheritance. And in that case, the father backhanded him with the back of his hand, slapped him across the face and threw him out on his ear and rejected him and had nothing to do with him. But something happened in that situation. Something that the older son does not do, that the older son is supposed to do. When there is a conflict between a son and a father, the brothers 
of that son are supposed to come and intervene and work toward reconciliation. In the case of this story from Ken Bailey, the sons went to work. They went to the father like, your son, your young, he's just a fool. Don't hate him. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. He's been so influenced by other, by outside culture. He doesn't understand the insult he just gave to you. Give him another chance. They went to the younger son, to their younger brother, and it's like, what is wrong with you, son? This isn't how you treat your dad. You've got to go back and say, I'm sorry. You've got to go back and admit that you did something wrong. It took five years before that father would even have anything, would even have a conversation with that son, before he would let him back in his house. It took five years of those brothers working toward reconciliation, of working toward getting the father to receive, to offer grace and getting the son to come in repentance. Five years of working to restore that family together because of this insult. And that was the job of the older son in this situation. The older son should have gone in to the father and said, whoa, 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 just get, wait a moment. Let me go talk to your, to your son. Let me go talk to my brother and we'll get this figured out. He doesn't have to leave. He doesn't, don't throw him out. Don't, don't get wrathful with him. Because that's what the son, older son should have expected to happen, that the father would get wrathful and he should have intervened immediately to stop this situation from occurring. But he doesn't. He stands on the sidelines. He stands and looks at what his father is doing. He doesn't care. Jesus sets up all three characters right here in this first verse, in these first two verses. The gracious father who gives to his son his request. The selfish younger son who made the request and said, I wish you were dead, dad. And the older son who doesn't care about what he's supposed to do. The older son who just stands on the sidelines and doesn't act toward reconciliation between father and son. And so what happens after that? The younger son leaves. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. That was after he sat there and liquidated all of the property. He had to quickly liquidate everything because there was a shame upon shame occurring here. The son, the younger son committed much sin and grave things against the father. He rejected the father's love. He was shameful and dishonoring before the whole village by saying he wished his dad was dead. And then he has to sell off everything in order to get the money to leave the country. He's got to get out of there because this village is going to come after him. And because the father didn't berate him, because the father didn't reject him, because the father didn't beat him down, the town is going to come and do that job in order to give honor to the father. They don't know what's going on. They must assume that there's something wrong with the father, that he's unable to enact justice against his son. And so the village is going to come in in the father's place. And so this younger son has to flee. He has to run away. He has to get away from town. And so he sells everything and gets liquid cash, gets cash and goes to the far country. He runs to the Gentiles. He exiles himself from the town. He exiles himself from the father. He flees and runs away. And then he gets there and he squanders everything. He loses it all. He parties. He has reckless living. Note, reckless living. Not sinful living, just unwise living. Later on, when his older son accuses him of having prostitutes, of wasting all the money on prostitutes, that's slander. Nothing in the text says the younger son was being wicked in his behavior. It's just he was reckless. He acted in unwise ways. He was wasteful and didn't use his property to take care of himself. And when he had lost everything, when he lost all that he had, a famine came and he was broken by it. He had nothing and was hungry. 
And so he went and hired himself out. Not a bad thing to do. But look at who he hired himself out to. In verse 15, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Another act of shame, of desperation on this young son's part. A Jewish boy out in the Gentile world loses everything and who does he go work for? A pig farmer. All the Pharisees hearing this are like, yes, that's exactly what should happen. This guy needs to be so dishonored. He needs to be so torn down. He needs to be so humiliated for what he did to his father. The Pharisees are seeing him getting retribution. He's getting his just desserts right now and just being driven deeper and deeper and deeper into his shame. The weight of everything the son has done is building upon him. And he's starving. He looks even at the food of the pigs and says, oh, I wish I could eat that. I'm so hungry. But then he finally comes to his senses and says, I'll go back home. My, the, my father's hired servants aren't hungry. They have plenty of bread. I'll go back to him. But he's still rejecting his father's love. No matter what he does, he's rejecting his father's love because he's only worried about his hunger. He's worried about being hungry right now. He's not worried about the brokenness of relations with his father. He's not concerned with the fact that he said, I wish my father was dead. He's not concerned with the fact that he shamed, he acted shamefully before the whole village by dishonoring his family, by dishonoring the community, by dishonoring everyone around him. He doesn't care about that. He only cares about being hungry. That's what's at the top of his head. And that's why he says, he'll say, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He wants to earn his way back. Another way to translate that, treat me as one of your hired servants, Kenneth Bailey points out, is make me a craftsman. Convert me, remold me, transform me into a day laborer, someone who is skilled in crafts and being car a carpenter or a stonemason, something that I can do outside of the house, something I don't have to do on your property and I can make a living. So Father, do that for me. Make me into this kind of person and I can earn money and I can start paying back the inheritance. I can start paying it back and once I get it all paid back, that's his plan is to pay all of it back and get back into good graces with his father, with the village. He wants to earn his way back because he just rejects his father's love. He doesn't accept that love of his father. He can't receive it because he's blind to it. He doesn't understand it. The love that is there from the get-go, he has rejected it. But he makes a plan. And some would say, oh, he's repented at this point, but he hasn't. He's had a little bit of a shallow repentance of saying, it's better to be home than here because at least at home I can get food. That's the only act of repentance he's done so far. Is saying, I don't like being hungry here, I can be well-fed there, so I'm going to go there. That's the only act of repentance thus far in this story. And so Jesus doesn't use any special words for repentance. He just simply says he came to himself, and so he got up and went. He arose and came to his father. Those aren't theological words for repentance. Those are just general words that they use to describe movement. But this is where we see something amazing happen. We see something beautiful happen. Because we see this rejected love of the Father become a radical, unexpected love. While the Son is a far way away, while He's outside the village traveling, the Father sees Him. 
The main home of the family would have been inside the village with their farm on the outskirts somewhere else. And the father is there watching, looking to the horizon, looking out for his son. And he sees him, and what does his father do? He runs to him. Again, this is something we don't get. The Middle Eastern context gives us so much here. For us, running is a normal kind of part of our lives. We, we, we can run. It's no big deal if someone runs. If an adult runs, if a gentleman runs, if someone well-off runs, it's no big deal. But in the Middle East, this is a shameful act, almost as shameful as what the younger son did to the father. For an old man to sit there and hike up his robes, he's showing off his legs and his underwear in order to run through the village, out to the outskirts of the village to meet his son. He's showing off his legs and a part of his nakedness before the whole village in order to get to his son before the village realizes he's there. If the village realizes the son is on his way back, the village is going to go out and berate him and do what they hadn't done, had a chance to do because he ran off. The son ran off so the village couldn't beat him, couldn't berate him, couldn't tear him down for his dishonor. So what does the father do? He shows an unexpected love by making himself shameful in front of the whole village, by distracting the village from the shame of his son and the dishonor of his son. And he takes that dishonor onto himself by him letting them be, see him in a dishonorable act. He runs through the village, showing off his legs, showing off his underwear, showing off his feet, running through the village streets on top of that in order to escape the village, in order to get out to the edge so that the village doesn't see the son. The village only sees the father embarrassing himself, making a humiliation of himself, becoming a laughingstock. And so the village is now in a place of mocking the father for this wild and ridiculous behavior of running. But that is the incarnated love of the father. That is the true love of God the father toward us, that he takes the shame of our actions upon himself. He receives what was the son's as his own to restore the son. The dishonor his son was sh has shown toward him is placed upon himself in order to bring the son back. And he runs out and the son sees him and the father falls on him and kisses him. As he is running to him, he falls onto him and starts kissing him out of joy for him having come back. And, the fa and he says, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, because guess what? The whole village is like, what's going on here? Why is this crazy old man making a mockery of himself running out to the edge of town? Let's go out and see what he's running to. His servants go out behind him to see what's going on. And all of a sudden they see him fall on his son and embrace him. And as the son kind of utters some of his speech to him, he only gets out the first two parts, which changes all the meaning. He says, Bring the best robe, bring my festal robes, bring my sandals, bring my signet ring out to him and put them on him because this is my son. He was dead and I have made him alive. He was lost and I have found him. Because that's what that means, isn't it? When it says he was dead and is found, or he was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Well, if you're lost and you're found, someone had to find you. If you were dead and suddenly you're alive, someone had to make you alive. And the father is the one through his unexpected love who makes alive the son. He finds his son on the outskirt and saves him from himself. The son is there in rags, but the father brings the festal robe. He says to the servants, go back to the house. We're on the outskirt of town. Go to the house and get my robe and bring it here and put it on him. Because they are going to walk through the whole village back to their house. 
and the son will be wearing the father's robes. The, fa the son will be wearing the father's honor upon himself. For these festal robes are the ones that probably were only used when the father went to Jerusalem for the great, three great feasts. He is wearing his father's honor upon himself, an honor that he does not deserve, an honor that he is utterly unworthy of. But the father gives it to him. He gives him authority with the signet ring. He makes him his son once more. For that is what the father does in his unexpected love. He brings back to life the son. He finds his son by grabbing him at the edge of the village and reclaiming him in front of everyone and then marching him through the whole village wearing his garments, saying, this is my son. And so the village can't mock him. The village can't berate him. The village can do nothing because they honor the father. They recognize the father's authority. They recognize the father's compassion. They recognize that the father can do what the father wants to do. And if the father wants to receive this deadbeat son who's an embarrassment to the whole community and even put his great clothes on him, we will honor the father's actions. Even if we don't like the son, we will honor the father and what he has chosen to do with his own wealth. And so the father has received his younger son. He has been reconciled to him and restored him to sonship. That is the magnanimity of the sons, of the father's love. That is the greatness and the graciousness of the Father and the compassion of the Father. This is beyond any concept of fatherhood here. The, the, the Pharisees think Jesus has a terrible understanding of sin, but he shows a younger son who is the most sinful person a Jewish man could imagine. One who says, I wish you were dead, Dad. One who sits there and liquidates his property and embarrasses himself and dishonors the community. One who then goes and lives with Gentiles and then starts feeding pigs. That is unbelievable. That is something that we just can't understand. But that is what the Father receives back to Himself. Because Jesus is telling them, this is what the Father is like and this is why we will celebrate. And to wrap things up here, we see now the reconciling love of the Father. Because now, everything that happened with the younger son is now going to be played out with the older son. Jesus retreads the story, but from the other direction. On the one hand, you have a son who breaks every law in the book, and now you have a son who has kept every law in the book, but yet does not have a relationship to his father, but yet doesn't understand the love of his father, but yet does not understand the great shame he is bringing, the dishonor he is bringing to his father that his father nonetheless absorbs upon himself in the midst of the great celebration. The son, the older son, came back and he hears a party going on and so he grabs hold of one of the servants. It's probably actually a little kid. They're playing outside. The word for it can mean a child or a servant. All the servants are probably going to be inside. But it's more typical that we translate it as servant. But it really probably is a young child, a kid, a boy just running around playing. Maybe he's doing some things, helping out. But he grabs and he's like, what's, what's going on? And this kid is like, oh, your brother came back. Your brother has come and your father killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. One of the rare times I take serious issue with most, with most English translations. Safe and sound there, I think, and I'm convinced by Ken Bailey, should be translated as in peace. The Greek word there for safe and sound is a word that is used in the Greek Old Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the word shalom. Every time shalom occurs, this Greek word occurs. And so, for it to get translated as safe and sound, which is what it technically does mean in Greek,
but it has that Hebrew sense to it now from being the Old Testament and the Greek Old Testament being used for that word shalom that is about wholeness, about perfect peace, about relational peace. That is about a holistic kind of peace that all things have been healed and made right. And so this young boy is like, your father received your brother back in peace. And what does the brother do? He gets angry. He flies off the handle. He starts yelling and screaming like, how can my father do this with this deadbeat of a son? How can he do that? And he refuses to go in. That, again, is an act of extreme dishonor. To reject his father's actions, to reject what his father is doing, is to reject the father himself. And he acts shamefully and dishonorably toward the father in this moment. He is yelling and screaming. And what does the father do? He does exactly the same thing that he did with the younger son. He comes to him and he offers him grace and compassion and he works toward reconciliation. The son, who should have been the reconciling force, has failed. But the father comes to bring reconciling love to this older son who wants nothing to do with this situation. The father comes out and pleads and entreats him to come in to join the party. The father could have had him beaten and locked up for the night for his behavior. Again, the, the authority that the father has over his sons, he never exercises. But instead, he gives grace. And the older son's response is simply that, I have done everything. I never disobeyed you, and you never gave me a goat. He's, he's mad that he didn't get food. That's what it comes down to. He's mad that the father is giving food to this younger son and didn't give him any special food. They're both worried about hunger. They're both worried about getting fed. But when this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother, he is so angry. He has so rejected this brother of his that he can only refer to him as the son of his father. This son, when he comes back after devouring your property with prostitutes, he slanders his brother, but then he also gets something wrong. The property isn't the father's anymore. At the beginning of the story, the father divided the property. The father no longer is in control of the property. It is the older sons and the younger sons. And so he is so angry and so mad, he's trying to blame the father for everything that's wrong in this situation. You killed the fattened calf for him. You throw this big celebration because he came back. But that's not why they're having a celebration. The older son misunderstands the celebration is not because the son came back. The celebration is because the father found him. The celebration is because the father has extended love and that love has been received. The celebration is about the father's grace and kindness and compassion. The older son thinks it's for the younger son, but it's really for the father. The father is celebrating what has happened. And in this reconciling love, the father looks at his son and says, Son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. That's true. He has given his older son everything that he had. It was fitting to celebrate. We had to have a celebration. Because this brother of yours, he was dead but I have made him alive by receiving him. He was lost and I have found him. So we have to celebrate. We have to rejoice because I have found your brother and made him part of our family again. And then the story ends. We don't know what happens. We don't know what the older brother does. Does he continue to remain outside of his father's relations? Does he continue to deny and reject his father and refuse to act as a son should behave? We don't know, 
But what we do see is that both the older and the younger son had the same problem. They commit all kinds of different sins, but all of those sins that they commit are symptoms of one condition, that they have rejected the father's relation and they have rejected his love for them. And that is what the Pharisees have done. And they're being angry about Jesus receiving sinners. They have rejected the father's love. And so that is what we are confronted with today. Will we receive the father's love? even though he is going to accept terrible, ugly, horrible sinners. Because guess what? We're all terrible, ugly, horrible sinners deep down. Because the one foundational sin that all of us share, no matter what the outward sins are, no matter what the outward actions are, the one foundational sin is that we live in separation from the Father. We reject the Father's love. Our very sin nature pushes back against him when we live out of ourselves. We hate the Father. We hate the work that he is doing to reconcile us. But are we going to let the full weight of sin bear upon us? Are we going to let the full weight of the law come down upon us to drive us back, even if we're going back for the wrong reason, to drive us back toward the Father so that the Father can then lavish his love upon us, so he can lavish his Son upon us, so that he can give us his Son's honor, his Son's righteousness, his perfect and beautiful actions on our behalf? to remove our shame from before the Father, to remove our dishonor, to remove all of our sin, and we get righteousness, we get honor, we get mercy and kindness. And that kindness is what causes the younger son to truly repent, I think. The fact the father simply ran and laid hold of him and hugged him and kissed him. The son doesn't go on to say, make me a craftsman, dad. But he just simply says, I have sinned against the heaven and against you, and I am unworthy. The father's kindness caused the son to finally see that his sin was real. His sin was against heaven and against his father. His sin was not in abandoning his father. His sin was not merely in asking for the inheritance. His sin was in rejecting the father's love, and he finally receives it and goes in with the best robe on. He receives all of his Father's kindness and mercy, and that is what we are called to do this day, to recognize our own brokenness, our own sinful, broken relationship to the Father, and to let him embrace us and renew us. That is the calling of the Father to us today. That is the calling of Jesus to us today. And that is the reconciling love that comes before us, that is unexpected even though we rejected it. That is what the Father is doing now for us, calling us and laying hold of us, watching for us to return. And so may we return, and may in our return we bring in our wake others who are in need of hearing of the Father's love. May they see the Father's love poured upon us that it might then be poured upon them. May the Father act through us toward others to bring about a reconciling love throughout all the communities and all the villages and all the cities that we live in. Because that is what the Father is doing through Jesus. Lifting us out of our shame. Lifting us out of our dishonor by taking our dishonor and shame on himself in Jesus. So that we can be found. So that we can be made alive. And through that to bring others to himself. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.